This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We have finished our sermon series on Micah. And as we come into Advent, uh, we had some options for kind of uh, what we'd like to do to kind of highlight a theme through these next four Sundays. Uh, And something that occurred to me uh, was that we sing a lot of songs, you know? It's like we can't wait. It seems to get earlier every year that Christmas songs get turned on the radio, and we want to do it just a little bit earlier. Um, This year, I was a little bit frustrated uh, because Margarita wanted to put up her, uh, our Christmas tree before Thanksgiving. And I was like, whoa, we're starting way too early. But this time of singing, um, it There's something about these songs that remind us not only of the time, uh, but there's many of these hymns that are immensely laden with these themes that we see in the Bible of expectation. And so as I was thinking through the series, I thought it might be good to kind of look at some of these themes that are in these hymns. Hymns like, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Joy to the World. And so for these four Sundays, we're going to kind of take themes from um, those, these hymns, um, and we're going to see where they came from in Scripture. And from those Scriptures, we're going to learn aright how to yearn with godly and biblical expectation, godly and biblical longing to see the King come. So come that long-expected Jesus. Um, is a hymn that outlines why we would have so much longing. If you don't know it, we're going to sing it at the end of the service, actually, so you'll be able to see it there, and hopefully you'll be able to see these themes come through from Isaiah 40. Because my hope is not so much that we uh, reflect on hymns that we love and cherish so much, which is, of course, true, but my hope is that we would go to Scripture to see these themes, and no matter what hymns or songs we're singing whenever, we will be correctly oriented for this right and godly longing. So we talked last week about hopelessness and how to have hope. And as we start Advent, uh, this, we're going to be talking about this godly expectation of, of, of Christmas. And at Christmas, there's this expectation that there's going to be peace and joy and goodwill all around. There's a certain kind of magic that we expect at Christmas, a certain amount of enchantment. We long to be enchanted by Christmas. And although we look forward to the holidays, uh, I think there's something that we all experience, which is that little sense of, oh no, I've built up all of this great expectation, and yet I know I've been here before, and I've been disenchanted time and time again. Oh no. Now this disenchantment happens for a number of reasons, uh, generally around the holidays, um, we get slash have to reunite with family. And that comes with some of family's rough edges. And it reopens old wounds that we were hoping were scabbed over and healed, uh, but are really just festering there and have been neglected for years. But disenchantment happens for other reasons. It happens when we realize that loved ones will no longer be celebrating with us. A sudden and persistent emptiness. There's the disenchantment of unmet longing. Another year spent dating, but another holiday season spent alone. There's the unmet longing for children to celebrate the holidays with. 
And beyond all of these unmet expectations, I think there's even one that strikes a little bit more at home, at least for me, which is the unmet expectation of myself as I think about the last year and I think of all of the things that I was hoping to change about myself and how much better I was going to be and in a better place. And I look back and I'm like, I'm not in a better place. I still go to the same well-worn paths to sin. We can be just as passive-aggressive towards our spouses. We can lose control with that one particular child that we just can't handle right now. With all the expectation of Christmas season, there's sure a lot of disenchantment with the magic that's supposed to be there. Holiday movies often start with a lot of this. The world is harsh or we are harsh. Uh, We're curmudgeonly and Scrooge-like. And it's Christmas. The seasons, the songs, the lights, the sounds, the smells, they all get together and they're going to change us. We're going to have a character arc that's going to flip us from being these people that are disenchanted to re-enchanted with the Christmas story. And maybe one place that we love to see this the best is the Christmas movie Elf. You know, Buddy the Elf and Will Ferrell. Buddy the Elf is full of Christmas spirit, but consistently meets person after person who is disenchanted with Christmas. Whether it's his jaded, disconnected father, his insecure love interest, his lonely half-brother, and Buddy's job is to enchant them again with holiday cheer, a song, childlike silliness and antics and innocence. And that might be enough for Elf, and that might be enough for us while we're watching Elf. But a couple hours after finishing it, we're back to kind of our grim realities. The holiday cheer didn't quite transform us like we were hoping. What do we do about this disenchantment of unmet expectations? Well, in Isaiah, we're going to see that when we run to God with this disenchantment and our different layers of disenchantment, we're going to see that at every turn, God meets us with comfort, and he does it in various ways. But if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from Isaiah chapter 40. We've already read a little bit of it for our assurance of pardon, but we're still going to start in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places like a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This ends the reading of God's word. May he comfort us with it by the power of his Holy Spirit. Please be seated. So Isaiah's chapter 40 opens with comfort, comfort. And in the midst of our disenchantment, we are met with the Lord's comfort. Now, people in Isaiah's day were definitely disenchanted. Um, If you were with us through our series through Micah, Micah and Isaiah prophesied at the same time uh, to roughly the same people. And so you can import a a lot of that context of who he's speaking to. But for those who weren't there, um, 
The northern kingdom of Israel, uh, Israel has been divided at this point in time into a northern and southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom has been carried away by the Assyrians. Um, they've been utterly defeated, and the same army is um, encroaching upon the southern kingdom, and most of the people in the southern kingdom are holed up in Jerusalem, their most, uh, one of the most secure cities, uh, as they're like being besieged. It's kind of uh, the, the act that marks this time period of these prophets. And you would think that the prophets would be giving them hopes of comfort, comfort all the time. But actually, if you were to read the rest of Isaiah and the rest of Micah, as we saw, uh, the, the prophets themselves are prophesying that God's judgment is going to come against them. They had an idea that God was always going to be for them. They had an idea that this city was theirs and no one could take it. They had an idea of what their children's lives were going to be like, and it was all going to get torn down brick by brick. You can imagine them saying, why, God? Why is this happening? I thought that there was supposed to be goodness and love and mercy. What is going on? They were disenchanted. And I think in our disenchantment, we ask the same questions. Why, God? Why is it that I face this disappointment time and time again? Why is my extended family so broken? Why are we still in this place? We are so weary, God. And we're wearied by the harshness of this world. Now, there's a harshness of this world that is uh, painfully apparent uh, in the lives of children and their experience. Uh, and it's, it's seem, seemingly in simple things, although we experience them as well. Like we say we're going to go to the park, but it rains. Uh, friends cancel plans last minute. Uh, ice cream falls off the cone and onto the ground and cannot be salvaged. And just disenchantment. The world is not the way that it's supposed to be. But this isn't just true with children. This harshness is, of course, something that we experience too. We feel the harshness of natural disasters that no one is responsible for that takes our homes. We feel the harshness of others' sins against us, injustice, neglect, profiteering, racism. We often feel the harshness of the world most acutely, though, in the loss of a loved one. Why, God? I miss them. This world is harsh. And it's in that moment we, we are, when we are disenchanted with the world, that the world is actually a good place, uh, full of good people. And we see the world for what it is, harsh and abrasive. And in Elf, the world was also harsh and abrasive. People are mean, bullies through snowballs, gum is left on the rim of trash cans, and Buddy the Elf's answer is just to be more positive. Think positively. Be excited about it. Just whatever this is happening over here, we're just going to be happy and sing songs. Is that what God tells us to do? Because we might say that in bullies throwing snowballs, there might be some sense there where we just have to be more positive, maybe. But maybe there's a good space for us to recognize the harshness of the world and that it's not the way that it should be. God doesn't ask the people in Isaiah's day, to just be more positive. He says, bring me all of your disenchantment, and I want to give you comfort, comfort. I want to speak tenderly to Jerusalem. When they're crying out, why, God, 
Why? He says, come to me, and I will answer with a tender word. Even though Jerusalem is experiencing the consequences of their own actions, the harshness of the world around them is still painfully felt, and God is not harsh with them in turn, saying, yeah, you have to experience the harshness of the world to grow up. I'm preparing you for the harshness of this world. It's not God's response. It's tenderness. This world is not the way that it should be. It should be different than this. God is not described as dispassionate towards his people, but tender and soft-hearted. And in the midst of your disappointment and grief, whether in the holiday season or any other time, I want you to know that God calls to you and says, tell me. My heart breaks too. This isn't the way that it should be. Even in the midst of God's judgment of Jerusalem, the fact that God can answer this way in Isaiah 40 means that the purpose of his judgment against them is actually to bring them into repentance, to speak tenderly to them, to draw them into deeper relationship, not to punish them and keep them far off. A frequent comment I get from people is how the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament can be the same God. Because the God of the Old Testament seems harsh, unforgiving, judgmental, but the God of the New Testament seems fatherly, full of mercy and abounding in love. But Isaiah 40 is a beautiful example of God's consistency throughout Scripture, and we deduce from that for all of time. He got it. He's a God who is compassionate and merciful, longs for you to run to him with your grief while he weeps with you. The best place to see this is, of course, Jesus. He's unspeakably tender with people. We can think of him weeping at Lazarus' tomb, but we can also think of this man born blind. I don't know if you remember this story, um, but the Pharisees are kind of like, well, who sinned here? Because this is a judgment from God. Did, did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus is tender towards the man, heals him of his blindness. Do you believe that Jesus is this tender towards you? Or have you assumed that God is harsh, in some ways like training you up to live in a harsh world? You see, I think um, sometimes, and, and maybe this is uh, particularly acute with men in our culture, um, I think my father was this way, and, and I, like this way with me, and I, I'm this way with Joaquin all the time. Uh, there's this sense of cynicism that sets in, that I have to prepare him for the world that he's gonna live in, and so I can be harsh with him. And as I look at the best example of fatherhood, I have to say that that's not the example that I should be following. That there can be a closeness and a tenderness at the brokenness of the world that also prepares us to live in it. In order to do that, we have to live in right relationship with a God, a God who doesn't keep us at arm's length with our grief and suffering, but who invites us in closer and says, yeah, that shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be that way. God doesn't want you to just think more positively about your situation, but he weeps 
with you. So the first way that we can see that God comforts us in our first kind of level of disenchantment is that God speaks tenderly to us, not harshly. But God also speaks something in his tenderness. If you were to look in our passage there, he'll continue. In his tenderness, he says to say something. Tell her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In this tender answer, Isaiah also identifies another layer of disenchantment. You see, the first layer of disenchantment that hits us is just kind of the cruelty and harshness of the world. This is unfair. It shouldn't be this way. However, upon a little bit further reflection in in Scripture or even just on ourselves, we recognize that we're part of the problem. And we're disenchanted with ourselves. Buddy's dad, an elf, is one whose own mistakes haunt him. He chooses to pretend like they're not there. He'll do anything that he can to get rid of them. What do you want, some money? I just want this to go away. You're revealing that I'm not as awesome as I thought I was. There's holes in my story. We can see this throughout the, uh, the movie Elf. You know, his dad has to do something. He can no longer pretend to sing the words. He must actually sing some of them, so sing, sing the words uh, to get the Christmas cheer and transform his, his character arc. Jerusalem was disenchanted with themselves. They thought they were awesome. And in the face of their mistakes coming forward, they suddenly saw that they were not nearly as awesome as they thought, and they just wanted it to go away. Why, God, can it happen? And then they realize that actually we have a part to play in this. Did they just have to do something? Sing a more cheerful song? Make a little bit better sacrifices? Would that finally turn things around? But what turned things around, the speaking tenderly, was that her iniquity is pardoned. And notice there that it wasn't her that did it. Jerusalem didn't muster the strength to be forgiven, didn't make enough sacrifices that finally appeased an angry God. Her iniquities were pardoned. God doesn't tell them to do something about their sin, but that something has been done about their sin. Jerusalem had apparently received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, and that's kind of interesting, right? Uh, double Double for sins from the Lord's hand. Um, and that might cause us to ask this question, like, has the Lord, the Lord gone too far? Like, you know, was he angry in his punishment and like just uh, uh, disciplined them out of his anger and realized like, ooh, maybe that was a little too far and I, I gave him a little too much. As if there was some cosmic scale and they just had to mount up enough punishment and then they'd be even. You see, Jerusalem's war they thought was with Assyria, but their primary war wasn't with Assyria at all. They had waged a war against God himself. By their sin and disobedience and negligence, they had declared war against God himself, and the punishment was severe. And here's how we know how severe it was. Um, Israel made sacrifices, right? But one of the first places in the Bible where we start seeing these sacrifices being made is with uh, this guy named Abraham. He's the father of of all of Israel. Uh, And this guy, Abraham, um, basically, since Adam and Eve, God is at war with all of mankind because mankind said, we're going to be like God. That was impossible in its own way. They listened to the serpent. They ate the fruit. We're going to be like God. So now they're at war with God. God approaches Abraham and he says, I'm making a peace treaty with you. You and your family. 
I'm going to make promises to you. And there's going to be stipulations on your end too. And the way in Abraham's day that they would signify how severe, how important one of these treaties would be, was that they would take a bunch of animals, they'd cut them in half, uh, they'd spread them out uh, and separate them so that there was an aisle uh, in the middle of their bodies in some ways. And then both parties would walk through these separated bodies of animals as if to say, if anyone breaks any aspect of this covenant, let us be like these animals. Abraham broke that treaty. Moses broke that treaty. Isaiah broke that treaty. And so do we. We wage war against God himself. And the punishment is severe. But the interesting thing about the peace treaty with Abraham was that Abraham never walked through it. God caused a great deep sleep to fall on Abraham, and he laid him down, and God walked through it by himself. God essentially saying, I will represent both sides of this treaty. I will not only be the protector and defender, but I'll be the one that upholds all of the law that I myself have given. I will do both, and I will rescue those who haven't done it from the estate that they are in, and I will bring them into a relationship with myself. Because we know that when the dust of war settles between God and man at the end of time, Abraham, Isaiah, and all of God's people will not be bloodstained, but will be white as snow. Because someone else represented us in the peace treaty with God. Someone who could actually keep the treaty and would suffer its consequences on our behalf. The reason that Jerusalem could not receive double for her sins is because once her sins and iniquities were pardoned, there was nothing left to suffer. There's something right about us being disenchanted with ourselves because we don't have what it takes to live into our relationship with God. There's something right and proper with saying, I can't do it. But God is never disenchanted with us. There's a grief that comes with our sin that weighs us down, and this can be apparent in holiday get-togethers where we have broken friendships and family relationships. There's a hard-heartedness that we have had that has wrecked untold damage, and we have wrecked untold damage upon ourselves through self-harm, self-medicating, and self-help, all just trying to control a little bit of the disenchantment that we feel. I'm not who I should be. I wish I was different. And we no longer carry the weight of this disenchantment with ourselves around. We don't have to punish ourselves. We don't have to perform better. We don't have to bear the shame and we don't have to hide. God isn't disappointed with you because you have been pardoned to the utmost. There is no stain left. And although all things are not as they should be now and we still experience the harshness of this world, God says that all things, including you, will be as you should be later. I am for you. God forgives us of that which haunts us. And he speaks tenderly to us that our greatest war that we've ever been involved in has ended. A war that we started has been ended by God himself. He paid for it all on the cross when he said, it is finished. It is finished. 
And it's such a comfort to us who are wearied by how far short we've fallen of who we even want to be ourselves, nonetheless, who God says we should be. Our first layer of disenchantment is with the world, and God speaks tenderly with us. The second layer was that we realize that we're disenchanted with ourselves and that God forgives us, but there's one more layer to uncover, and this is one that Elf uh, doesn't talk about or highlight in his movie, and it's one because if we're honest, we feel a little bit embarrassed sharing as well, because we're not only disenchanted about the world and ourselves, but we're a little bit disenchanted with God. We feel really let down by him. He's silent when we want him to speak. He feels far away when we want him close. And we can probably all remember those spiritual highs that we had at the beginning of our faith or some important moment where we felt really close with God, but as the regularity of life settled back in, we were disenchantment. And the enchantment that we once felt was gone. And so we believe the world's story. Did God really say that he was going to do that? Jerusalem felt disenchanted with God. Whatever he had promised wasn't going to come true. Their city was going to be destroyed. Their children would not have lives but to be slaves in another land. And as the disenchantment settles in, they start to question, did God really say? Is he really who he says he is? And they started to believe that God, if he was there at all, had tricked them, enchanted them with a dream of some fairy tale story of positivity and cheerfulness. In the midst of this disenchantment, a voice cries, make way, the king is coming. Make way, the king is coming. When Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist cried out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what John was telling everyone around was that he's the one. He's the one that's going to do it. He's the one that's going to pardon all of your iniquities, that's going to declare to you your warfare has ended, that's going to declare to you peace, peace, because of the end of his kingdom, there will not be one. But John didn't just identify Jesus as the lamb who was taking away the sins of the world. He is telling everyone that Jesus is king. Because when people later asked John the Baptist who he was, he quoted the very text that we read today. He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, John the Baptist knew that he was a herald of a king. Kings have kingdoms, subjects, rules of order. And what John was declaring was that this old order was passing away and a new order is coming. This old order of harshness, of unforgiveness, of gods who are far off is ending because a new order is coming where there is tenderness, forgiveness, and gods who condescend to us. Make way. The king is coming. But there's still this question, right? Kings are far off in their castles, usually. And like, unless you're royalty, uh, you don't get to spend a lot of time with kings. 
Um, you might see them passing or something, but it's like, you, like just, you know, us down here, normal people, we don't get to hang out with kings. And I know our president's not one, but like how many of you can say you have a personal relationship with the president? I'm guessing not many. Nobody's raising their hands. Maybe that'd be a little embarrassing to say. I don't know. Um, the relationship with royalty, with leaders of that magnitude, no one can claim. Jesus' disciples asked the same question. Jesus, they said, what are we supposed to do if you leave us? To join your Father in heaven. You may rule and defend us from afar, but we got to be honest, we really like you here. And we're worried about what happens when you leave. And Jesus' answer is in part, don't worry, I'm coming again. But given how long Israel had waited before, they would say, we have to wait again? Are you going to be far off or forever? And he says, but there's more. When I leave, I'm going to send to you a comforter. I'm going to send you comfort. Do you guys know that the Holy Spirit was called the comforter? God's comfort to us because he's the one that groans with us so that we can be honest with God about the harshness of the world with groanings too deep for words. He's the one who not only convicts us of our sin, but also declares that true and lasting peace has occurred. Uh, Jesus in John 16, when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, says that the Holy Spirit comes to tell us again and again that that ancient war is over and that through Jesus we have peace with God. The Holy Spirit is also the one that makes us a part of his in-breaking kingdom, a kingdom that is not far off, but that is in breaking here and now, now so that we actually become in our own little ways, little heralds of the king, and we shout out, make way, the king is coming. There has been peace achieved between me and God. There is peace coming in the world. Make way. This old order that was marked by grief and harsh world and sins that could not be forgiven and gods who stood far off, this new order is marked by Jesus' reign himself and this one full of compassion and love and mercy and one that declares peace. And as people who wait for the in-between, I thought it might be helpful to show us what this kind of waiting looks like. In Luke 2, you're going to see two characters, uh, Anna and Simeon. Uh, Anna is a woman who was widowed after seven wonderful years of marriage for the husband, with the husband of her youth. Um, so her husband died after seven years, and she stayed a widow with no children. She felt the harshness of the world in her day. The loss of her husband and no children, there was an acute loneliness. And she spent her days till she was 84 when Luke 2 enters into the scene, fasting and praying at the temple. And I imagine during those intervening years that she ran to a God with her disenchantments, pain, and loneliness, and she found words of comfort. And she'd experienced those tender words for 84 years when she met Jesus as a baby, when Mary and Joseph brought him in. And she could proclaim Make way. The king is here. Simeon is also a man in this story. 
looking for consolation and comfort in Israel. He was wondering if his people's sin had been so great as if to dissuade God from doing what he promised that he would do. The kingdom that was long expected, though, for Simeon came breaking in in the form of a baby, and he could say, now your servant can depart in peace. The king is here. God's promises are being fulfilled. You see, Jesus was not just a king like David. Jesus was God himself. Come down from heaven to declare peace to us. A king who entered into our messy lives to comfort us, to speak tender words to us, to show us how our sins will be forgiven, and to say that there will be a kingdom in which you have a place, and that your place here and now will be full of comfort by the Holy Spirit that you will learn to depend on because my kingdom is better than you possibly could have imagined. In my kingdom, I promise I will bring it back to you because do you know how much it costs? It costs my life. That is how much I love you. That is how much I long to be with you again. And until the fullness of time comes and I can be with all of my people, I send you my comforter. This king who entered into our messy lives, this king says he's gonna come back. This king provides for us while we are here and now, provides for us peace, tenderness, and the Holy Spirit himself. And so it is that we can sing the words more truly than ever, come thou long expected Jesus. Bring your kingdom here. Jesus not only wanted us to tell to tell us with words about how he was going to bring a kingdom. But he wanted to tell us um, in a way that we could taste it, um, that we would know it not just with our minds, um, because he didn't just make our minds, he also made our bodies. And he said, uh, your bodies aren't just going to fade away and you're going to be spirits in heaven. I'm going to resurrect your bodies, because there's something about your bodies that I love. There's something about your bodies that I created that I'm redeeming, that I'm going to make whole, that I'm going to remove of every brokenness that you've experienced here because I want you to be able to sit around a table with me in the resurrection and eat with me. This table is a sign of that promise. It's a declaration of how much Jesus wants to eat with you around a table, how seriously he takes his mission that he's going to come back. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the remission of your sins. Take and drink and know that I am for you. If you know this comforting God, you have been united with him in baptism, then this table is for you. This sign, this promise, this declaration is for you to taste and feel. If you don't know this God and you're not sure about his promises, you're not sure about the enchantment that he's spinning, we ask you to refrain from this table, to participate in it only when you are sure, 
to recognize that it is a sign to those who know that when Jesus says he's coming back, he means it. In a moment, I will pray, and then we're going to come down the center aisle, and we'll go to these two serving stations here on my right and my left. Um, there is gluten-free bread. If you would like, uh, please notify your server. And then there's also wine and grape juice. The wine is red. The grape juice is clear. Please take according to your conscience. Um, if you would, please pray with me. Holy Spirit, you take our prayers and you groan with a groaning that is too deep for words and you groan with us about the harshness of the world and you speak tenderly to us. You convict us of our sin and you convince us of your, your pardon. You enlist us into the service of the one true King. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would nourish your saints this morning. Change these elements from their common use to empower your people to know God's comforting love for them today. I ask in Jesus' name.